How to Achieve Long-Term Success, a Case Study. Welcome to CEO to Rainmaker, a practical small business educational podcast designed to increase an owner's executive skills, raise profits, and achieve long-term sustainability. And now your host, Gene Valdez. Good morning, listeners. I have a super interesting show lined up for you. My guest this week is CEO Christina Colorides, who walks the walk and talks the talk. She has achieved long-term sustainability for a business she founded and owns, which is engaged in the very interesting wine business. In my view, Christina is a certified rainmaker, and today she's going to share with you how she achieved her success. Before I bring Christina on, please allow me to share her bio. Following family tradition, Christina has been involved in the wine business for over 35 years. Her father was a former key executive with Trader Joe's, a highly successful specialty grocery, and wine retail company, which now has over 500 locations across the United States. Christina gained valuable knowledge by working at Trader Joe's while in high school. She became a friend of the founder and owner, Joe Colum, who later became her mentor. In 2020, Christina founded Plume Ridge Bottle Shop, a wine wholesaler and retailer. Plume sells to consumers online and sells to businesses such as restaurants and wine retailers, such as Trader Joe's, face-to-face. Plume Ridge imports their wines from Italy, France, and from countries all over the world. Christina graduated from Cal State University, Long Beach, with a degree in business and initially was going to be an accountant, but fell in love with the wine business, and that became her life's purpose. So let's bring on CEO, certified rainmaker, Christina Colorides. Christina, so glad to have you here, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Gene, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, Christina, I must confess, I love wine, and, and does my wife, Anne. And I assume a good percentage of my listeners do too. So let's have you start educating my listeners and myself about the exotic topic of wines. I read in your bio and I came across a term that I had never seen in my life before. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. What does negotiant mean, Christina? The word negotiant means um, it's a role in the wine industry that um, comes from European roots. And it's basically the role of selecting, blending, and bottling wine for your consumer. Um, Not being a producer, but uh, negotiating. Negotiating the wine itself, um, the blend, and um, putting it out there as an excellent wine for your consumer. Ah, okay. So I learned something already. So what would you say is your your basic philosophy, Christina, about how your wines and how they resonate through your business? Well, wine, as I see it, is something really very simple. Um, 
wine is a food first and foremost. And secondly, it, it enjoying wine greatly enhances lifestyle. Um, it's that simple. And one of the famous quotes that I love that, that represents this is one by Julia Childs when she says wine is one of the agreeable and essential ingredients of life. That's a lofty statement. Okay. Well, I mean, if it's Julia, it must be right. Let me ask you a, you've been in business for a long, long time, which is not that easy. I, I tell all my clients, anybody that's been in business for a long time is not lucky. They have a design in their mind. They have a strategy. They have goals. Can you share with my listeners what you believe your best practices have been over the years in order that you have achieved this long-term sustainability? Sure. Um, I often scare myself when I think about how long Plume Ridge has been in existence. Um, I think I was 25 years old when I started the business. But there's five um, basic best practices that I've employed over the years, um, over the near 40 years. Now, I could talk about each one. How would yeah, you like to? Please do. Please do. Oh. Well, first and foremost, um, and very basic probably to many people, is that you must, you must live your shared vision or mission statement every day. So you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Um, but you must share it. You must share it with your employees, which seems very obvious, um, with your customers, but also with your vendors, your service providers. Um, you are selling your vision, basically, to all of these parties. And don't focus just on the consumer. That is, uh, that is um, one very important party, of course. But it's all these other people that surround you that also need to understand what your what your vision is. So it must be shared and it and you must live it passionately every day. That's a solid number one. Yes. And number two is healthy work-life balance. And I began this business as I said um, when I was quite young and I was expecting my first daughter within months of starting the business. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I started the business in September of 1982. And my daughter was born in spring of 1983. So maintaining a, um, a work-life balance was absolutely crucial for me personally to survive this situation. Um, but it was also obviously extremely important for the business to get off on the right track and to get a solid, solid ground. I am a true believer that family comes first. Work-life balance is extremely important. You know, we need to enjoy life. So, just um, just curious, is your daughter in work with you? Is she in the wine business or is she doing her own thing? She is an artist um, and does amazing work. She part-time, thankfully, she um, serves as our artistic um, design um, consultant to oh, everything okay. we do. But other than Good. that, she, she does not really work in the wine business at all. Okay. Uh, uh, the third... Um, uh, business practice that is extremely important and it kind of relates to uh, work-life balance. Um, treat your employees, I, I, you know, in high, high regard. Keep them in high regard. Give them flexibility um, in having work-life balance. And I, if, of all of the, quote, compensations that my employees have, I think this is one they value truly the most. But it's also important to compensate them higher than your industry's average. And what this does, it builds a loyal, small, smaller than you would otherwise need, 
um, strong team with great work ethic. And um, I, I think it's a wonderful best practice. Our current uh, employee uh, tenure is over 10 years, which is really quite wow. amazing. That is amazing. Yes, yeah. indeed. The fourth best practice is, is always employing ethical business practices. And this is extremely important. Hard to do when you're in a very competitive environment. Um, you're, the comp- competition will challenge you to be ethical, I think. Um, but when you're in a highly regulated industry like the alcoholic beverages industry, um, you need to be ethical. You could be shut down tomorrow for something extremely simple, like failing to notify the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board of California that you added a suite onto your business. This happened to us. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. So, so being ethical um, in other ways too, in in trading with your your customers. Um, but you know, it also, it also contributes to your company's image and your company's image is absolutely priceless. Um, I've learned that over the years. So would you say that, uh, the winemaking industry is kind of cutthroat, Christina, and maybe there aren't as many ethical companies that you are professing to be? Yes, it is highly competitive it's dominated by three national distributors that are very very large in size and they yet want to capture all of the business out there so it 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 is very very competitive and there are laws that we have to abide by so we need to make sure that we you know we keep keep our heads up even when other people may be doing things that are illegal it's easy to cut corners is what you're saying Yes, and to persuade retailers. Sure. Gotcha. So I read in your bio that you had alluded to this kind of double-edged demand supply strategy. Can you just give us a couple of minutes and highlight that, that strategy of your part? Yes, that relates to my fifth best practices, which is being oh, I'm resilient. Sorry. That, I, I'm sorry. I didn't give you a chance to conclude your fifth. Please ignore the question. And come back to it later. Sorry about that. It leads, it leads right into that. Um, okay. Well, then I'm the, psychic. Okay, good. <laughs> so being resilient, be, you must always be resilient. And I, you know, I pride myself in being resilient. I think I've taken a lot of punches over the years. But being resilient to react quickly to opportunity. So there's a positive side to being resilient. Many people f- feel it's only negative where you're trying to recover from a difficult situation. But being resilient means both, you know, taking, reacting quickly to opportunity and recovering in difficult situations. An example of being resilient in an opportunity might, might be when we added our um, online retail licenses uh, because it was newly available to people, companies sure. who hold important wholesale licenses. So that's taking advantage of an, being resilient in an, to an opportunity. But being resilient to recover from a uh, difficult situation, I think we're all kind of in tune with that, especially today in this incredibly fast-changing world. But in dealing with being resilient and, and managing resiliency, I like to lean on a model that I learned that is based on the um, double-entry accounting concept. 
whereby I can look clearly at my current business policies and list them almost in an accounting ledger. So when I say this is based on a double entry accounting, let me explain what that means. It means that on the um, left side, the debit side, you have demand. And demand is any you, anything you list on the left side is anything that relates to how your customer sees your business. So you have the demand or debit side. Then you have the right side, which is the uh, normally the credit, in this case, the supply side. And those are the factors that limit or determine your ability to satisfy demand. So it's a teach chart of sorts or accounting ledger. It, this is a good model to use when you're creating a business where you can list basic things under demand and supply and set policy, or you refer back to it as an existing business and you see, gee, this on the demand side has changed. Now, what on the supply side will change? Because as you know, in double entry accounting, um, there's always a corresponding entry um, on the other side. So as an example, you can start very simple on the demand side, your assortment, your pricing, your showmanship, which, which includes everything from advertising to, the, to how your physical store looks. And on the right side, you have things like your vendors, government agencies, and especially in, in the case of Plume Ridge, your employees, the shipping environment in, in terms of time, the shipping environment in terms of cost. So what you put on the demand side and supply side obviously varies uh, depending on your business. But as an example, let's say that you have a certain pricing policy under pricing on the demand side. And that policy, pricing policy is what makes you attractive to your consumer usually. But let's say that there is a change in on the right side, on the credit side or the supply side in the shipping environment. And this is happening right now to us in the shipping environment in terms of cost. Um, literally, transportation costs have are 10 times what they were two years ago. So, of course, we need to submit to our pricing. So the pricing policy on the left side forces an adjustment on the right side. So the, it gives you a clear view of how things work together well, and how I'm very interesting how you've approached that i i do uh, have to say that that is not a model that i created myself it was created by um joe cologne uh, the founder of trader joe's well spoken you know i'm a big believer on what i call the basis of differentiation why do your customers pick you over your competitors to buy wines i think for one to two reasons first of all we the goal of Plume Ridge Bottle Shop was to be the seller to our local community where our local wine lovers could buy authentic, high quality wines that meet a standard um, that I feel is important. Um, so much of the wines are organic, biodynamic, or in the least made from sustainably grown grapes. So I think consumers like the products that we offer. And they also, more importantly, love the discovery that we offer. Um, what do very you mean by part, that? What do you mean by okay. discovery? Yeah, a very big part of what we focus on is sharing our expertise and knowledge in a humble way. I mean, wine can be very complex, but we like to share our knowledge. We like to provide wines that give experiences to wine consumers that they may not ordinarily have access to. Um, we have 
what's called a cluster club that we send out seasonally as an example that has six wines, all selected for various reasons. Um, but our most common feedback from our customer is that I never would have picked those wines by myself, but I am so thrilled that I had this discovery because it's opened my eyes to new things. All right. So there's your hook right there. Discovery. Okay. So I'm going to, I'd like to shift to what I call knucklehead questions, Christina, because I'm not an expert like you. Do you have to spend a lot of money to get a good bottle of wine? Absolutely not. Quality is somewhat related to retail price, of course, but we all have the limits of our own pocketbooks. And there are so many wines present in the marketplace that I think the best advice I could give somebody who's interested in, in enjoying wine is, first of all, treat it like food. <laughs> Second of all, find a retailer that you can trust and that, that offers guidance if possible. Or okay. at least that you have the trust that something you select from their shelf will meet your standard. If you happen to choose Plume Ridge Bottle Shop as, as one of those retailers, that's fantastic. We're, we're always there to help. But perhaps you're, perhaps you're a student, let's say, and um, you go to your local Trader Joe's and there's a fine wine for $6.99 on the shelf. There are those wines out there that are value-oriented. Yeah. Now, I've um, I've also read, I'm sure a lot of people have read this, that dark chocolate and red wine is good for your health. And I'm hoping that you're going to say yes. <laughs> is that a myth or is that factually documented? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> again, the regulations do not allow us to say that drinking wine is healthful. So it puts... It puts all wine merchants in, in a pickle. You know, we can't say wine is helpful. We, just, we cannot put it in print. But, of course, there are many scientific um, studies out there that show that wine and chocolate are beneficial to, to health. And basically, and there's a lot of um, technical information on that, but basically both chocolate and wine have powerful sources of antioxidants and mostly red wine, however, as I'm sure people realize. Yeah. Most of those components that are antioxidants come from the skin and the seeds where white wine, there's less contact with that. So if you want to get into the technicalities or the science of why they're helpful, um, there's so all kinds of information out there. I, well, would I bet say, there is. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that it's helpful based on the fact that it's an extremely enjoyable experience. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so I heard that the that the antioxidants in in dark chocolate and red wine will will duke it out with the free radicals. So that's all I know. So I wanted that's to right. go. Right, I wanted to go right to you. So, so you know, we live in a, in a world of 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 consistent change. How has the wine business or the wine industry, Christina, changed? What are the ma the main points that have changed since? when you originally got into it to what it is now? Well, it has changed dramatically. As a young teen, I kind of witnessed the American wine consumer in its early stages of drinking German wine and um, was, was very popular. It's how American consumers cut their teeth. Um, and there has been all a number of stages of um, change and development. I would say more recently, there's been a very positive change in the fact that people are 
buying less wine, but drinking better. So there's higher wine sales in value, but slightly less in volume than there has been in the past. So that's a recent trend I think is really great. It fits right in with Plumeridge Bottle Shop's philosophy of selling authentic, genuine wines. Well, you know, Christina, I'm really sorry to say that uh, we've kind of run out of time, but you've been a fascinating guest. And if I have any listeners out there that are just wine connoisseurs and are just dying to ask you a question, what's the best way to get a hold of you? You can email me at Christina, that's with an A on the end, Christina at winemover.com. Well, Christina, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, um, That's a wrap for today, and I'm going to partake of my next bottle of wine thinking of you. (laughs) Cheers. So this concludes this week's episode, listeners. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, tell all your wine-loving friends. See you next week. This is me out. This has been CEO Terrain Maker with Gene Valdez. To find out more, like us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you have questions, email the show. Find that link and others in the show notes. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.